Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. In-depth, personal conversations with the most legendary figures in the history of contemporary music. Come with us as we explore the stories behind the albums and songs that have become the soundtrack of our lives. Here's your host, Pete Ganbark. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. Our guest this week is two-time Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Jason Mraz. Jason's unique blend of folk, pop, reggae, and singular wordplay has not only earned him record sales of over 13 million to date, but also an incredibly devoted fan base captured by his songs as well as his incredible live performance. Jason's 2008 mega-hit, I'm Yours, is one of the best-selling songs of the last 15 years and has been certified diamond for sales of over 13 million copies. Jason has not only found success with his music, but also with many other ventures, including the eco-sustainable Mraz Family Farms, the nonprofit Jason Mraz Foundation, and even his turn on Broadway, co-starring in the hit show Waitress for over 150 performances. Jason joined us live for a conversation at the Warner Music offices in downtown L.A. to discuss his career with a notable focus on the 15th anniversary of his seminal 2008 album, We Sing, We Dance... We steal things. So I won't is your day no more, no more. It cannot wait. I'm sure there's no need to complicate our time. Is short. This is our fate. Those of you who don't know me, I'm Pete Ganborg. I'm the president of A&R at Atlantic Records. I host a podcast called Rock and Roll High School that actually started a few years ago when we wanted to teach our staff about the history of contemporary music. And we've done some incredible interviews right here on this very stage with Lamont Dozier, with The Temptations, and today, that journey continues. Please welcome two-time Grammy Award winner, Jason Mraz. Hi, Pete. Hi, Jason. Hi, everyone. Hi, Jason. Thanks for joining us here at this beautiful Warner Music office and this beautiful stage and set design that you have created. I feel very honored to be acknowledged. Thank you. Well, we are here to celebrate the 15th anniversary release of Jason's seminal album from 2008, We Sing, We Dance, We Steal Things. So congratulations to you on 15 years Yay! of We Sing, We Dance. We did it, which is so cool. I mean, think about how many albums came out that like people still haven't heard of after 15, 20, 30 years. So I'm honored that this album was heard and that 15 years later we get to print it again and promote it again. It's just like, again, such a huge honor to be acknowledged. Absolutely. And you and the Warner Music Group have such great history together. You were signed here for close to 20 years, starting in 2002. And I would say welcome back, but you've never been to the downtown LA office. So... Welcome back, and welcome for the first time. Thank you. What a beautiful space you have here. So one of the things that I like to do before 
I interview anyone for the podcast is I like to check the news and I like to go and look at what has our guest been doing lately. Usually it's about, well, this artist is going on tour. This artist has an incredible reissue of an amazing piece of vinyl. But with Jason, when I searched what was going on in, in the news, it was a little different. May I quote the first line from the most recent news item I saw about okay. you? Sure. Jason Mraz and his partner, Daniela Karagach, earned the first nines of the season on Dancing with the Stars on Tuesday night. Hey! I'm afraid of her. That's why we're doing so well. Well, congratulations for continuing your journey. Thank you. On Dancing with the Stars. Thank you. Um, and every Tuesday night. Every so Tuesday we night. are taping this on Wednesday. So last night you made it through. I made it through. We're now in week five, and we had dance rehearsal this morning from nine to one. So I'm well, you were telling me backstage that you have dance rehearsals as long as you're still on the show. You have dance rehearsals every day. Every day. We rehearse Wednesday through Sunday to learn a new routine. And then on Mondays, we rehearse with cameras. And on Tuesdays, we do a full dress and then shoot the show. And when they showed me that schedule, I said, OK, but where are the days off? And they're like, oh, no, no, we don't have those. And I couldn't believe it. And then when I met my partner, Daniela, I said, where are the days off? She goes, oh, you can have a day off. But what is that going to do for you? <laughs> I said, oh, okay, you're right. So there are no days off. So some stats before we start our conversation. You are a two-time Grammy Award winner. Your Warner Music Group catalog has generated 9.4 billion streams, with a B, and 13.2 wow. million album equivalents to date. That's a lot of streams and a lot of albums sold. Wow. Your song, I'm Yours is now certified 13 times platinum, which is diamond plus three. Yeah. It set a record for the number of weeks on the Billboard Hot 100. I think, was it 71 weeks or something? 76 right. weeks, Pete! Woo! <laughs> and has since been streamed more than 3.5 billion times, making wow. it, Drum roll, please. The number one stream song released by a solo artist in the decade of 2000 to 2009. Wow. Wow. But your story doesn't start there. Mm. It starts way back in 1977, Jason. Oh, we're going there, Pete. When you were born... In Mechanicsville, Virginia. But one thing that I didn't know until getting ready for today is that the name Mraz is actually Czech for the word frost. Indeed. Or as I like to think of it, cool. Right. <laughs> Not icy. Cool. Cool, man. So... <laughs> You've released eight studio albums, the first in 2002 on Elektra Records, the latest in 2023, coming full circle with our friend Martin Tereffe. That's right. It's called Mystical, Magical, Rhythmical, Radical Ride, yes. and it was released on your 46th birthday. That's correct. That's a nice birthday present. It was. 
So when you grew up in Mechanicsville, Virginia, where is Mechanicsville for those of us who are geographically? It is uh, a suburb of Richmond, Virginia, right there in central Virginia. And your mom and stepdad listened to jazz. Your dad listened to R&B and oldies Mm -hmm. and a style of music that I don't think gets talked about enough called Carolina Shag, which is also known as Carolina Beach Music. Deep cuts. Yeah, it's good stuff. Got to check it out. And then how did you first, what's your first musical memory? What do you remember about growing up in Virginia and what made you start noticing music? Obviously the radio, anywhere, anytime we were traveling around in a car, I would always connect with the radio. And, and honestly, this is so weird, but I feel like one of my earliest musical memories is hearing air supply on the radio and hearing the harmonies and, and feeling like radio had colors in it. Mm -hmm. And I was always attracted to then trying to sing harmonies to whatever was on the radio. My parents took me to see the Beach Boys and Kenny Loggins and a lot of Carolina Shag music. So we would see General Johnson and the chairman of the board, the Embers. My dad would take me to see the Four Tops and the Temptations every time they came to town. So a lot of rhythm and blues. I saw Chubby Checker, Delbert McClinton. They were frequently taking me to live shows. How old were you at this point? Oh, anywhere from... Five, six to, you know, early teens, you know. After that, you just start to distance yourself from your parents. Right. Do you remember the first record you ever purchased? I really don't, but I was buying 45s at a store called Bradley's because maybe for just a couple of bucks, or even a buck maybe, you could get a 45. I I remember I bought Paul Abdul straight up. Of course. Uh, Bradley's is like, that was a chain, that was like Kmart. Yeah, exactly, and they had a cool record selection. But around 88, 89, I got a CD player for Christmas, and I went and I bought Kwame, and I bought D-Light, World Click. Those were my first two CDs. Well, D-Light, World Click was on Elektra. Awesome. So we try to bring these things full circle. Love that. There you wow, go. Wow, amazing. And I want to say Kwame may have been on Atlantic, but I could be completely okay. making that up. Uh-huh. I remember all the polka dots. Then. Yeah, a lot of polka dots, yeah. And prior to that, my dad was giving me his records. So I had like some old console stereo that used to be my dad's in my bedroom. And he had a stack of records. And it was mostly singer-songwriters and some 70s rock bands. And as a young person, I didn't connect with them as much, even though I listened to all the Jim Croce records and Cat Stevens and some James Taylor and Bread. But that was your dad's music. Yeah. Not your uh, music. Paul Simon and Crosby, Nash. That was my dad's music. But the funny thing would happen is around 17, 18, when I started playing guitar, all those records became like gold. And it all made sense to me when I started playing guitar. But prior to that, it was just like my dad's music, yeah. Well, I read that when you were in high school in Virginia, there was a local band Mm -hmm. that was also playing music that was singer-songwriter-based, but kind of flipped on its head Mm -hmm. with a lot more going on percussively with, with the rhythm section and the band and the horns. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. And I think I know where you're going with this, but I have two bands in my head. Right. Because there was, there was two bands happening at around the same time. First was Dave Matthews' band. And that was the first time I had seen a singer-songwriter surrounded by jazz artists and making this jazz fusion sound 
out of, you know, basically my dad's music, singer-songwriter stuff. So that was refreshing to me. That's when my dad's records really started to click. I was like, oh, I don't have to play it this way. I can do it this way and dress it up with funk and jazz and, and psychedelic. And there was also another band at the time called the Agents of Good Roots. Same management, similar vibe. Charlottesville, right? Uh, Richmond, mm -hmm. but managed out of Charlottesville. Right. They would take Dave Matthews' time slots when Dave was doing national tours, because he was also, these were two local bands where I grew up. And I like to mention the Agents of Good Roots, because they eventually became my session band on my first album. That's amazing. I yeah. did not know that. Yeah. So as Dave Matthews' band started local, but then started getting bigger and bigger, what did you notice where, you know, your favorite local band is now national and they're not doing it the way your dad's music did it? Yeah, it was a model for me because we weren't in Hollywood or where there was a, a scene. We were kind of landlocked in kind of an artsy city, but with limited number of venues. And I was starting to play my guitar in my early college years, and the people that were coming were just a couple of my friends and my family. I was like, I don't want to bear my soul for my f mom and dad. Like, I need to find a cool audience of strangers <laughs> that don't know who I am, so I can be as deep and artistic and free. So anyway, seeing Dave Matthews go national with his brand of weird made me think, oh, you can get out of this city. You can make a noise that's bigger than just the few venues in this town. So watching their career take off became a model for me on how I might also be able to put my foot into the music business. And you know. When did you start writing songs? I was 13 when I started writing songs. I was in civics class in eighth grade. And I started writing like rhyming raps and cutesy little songs that then I would record over instrumental B-side cassettes to make my own fun, quirky songs. And you were doing it just for fun? For fun. And I, would, I had a little Casio synthesizer type of thing where I could, or a Yamaha keyboard that I could arrange the verse and the chorus and then sing my song into a tape cassette so I'd have beat and bass and some chords. And it was just for fun. I wanted to see if I could entertain myself or delight my friends. And, and those little cassette tapes that I would make in high school and in college, they would get duped and passed around. And that's when, I, that's when it first clicked that this is a thing. Like, I'm capturing people's attention with these little made-up songs. There's something here. Like, this the art of recording, there's something to that, and I want to do more of that, yeah. And then that was the writing and recording, but I also read that the performing side of you, you did high school musical theater. I would just go wherever there was a stage, <laughs> right? So. As a young person, you just want every opportunity you can get. And so I didn't know if I'd be in musicals. I didn't know if I'd work on a cruise ship or at a theme park or busking I, or community theater. Like, 
when I was young, it really didn't matter yet because I just needed experience and I also wanted the exposure. And so I tried a bunch of those avenues but the one that I kept coming back to was the ability to sit with an instrument and make up a song and capture people's attention. And I thought, well, this is a stage, and I don't have to audition for it. I don't have to compete against other people for it. I just have to sit and do me, and hopefully, whether I'm on a sidewalk or a coffee shop or in a college dorm, I can hold people's attention with my little magic trick. I did try musical theater. I was a show choir kid in high school. But again, it was all because I just wanted experience. I wanted to get better at singing. I wanted to get better at performing. And you enjoyed performing in front of people. I love performing in front of people. I mean, I like doing a podcast in front of people, too. You like dancing in front of people. Apparently, I like dancing in front of people. I didn't know I would, but... Even if I danced poorly, I thought, well, I'll be a clown in front of people for a few weeks, and then they'll vote me off. Why not? Why not? And then it's, you won't have to go and rehearse every day if they do exactly. that. Exactly. Don't so vote you, for me, by the way. <laughs> so you talk about college, but you didn't spend a lot of time in college. Correct. I went to college twice. The first time for musical theater. But after two semesters, I realized that I didn't want to audition for a chance for someone to then give me permission to go perform other people's material. I had really fallen in love with original music, so I dropped out of school. I was in New York City at the time, and I went back to Virginia, took a job as a janitor, worked on my music all the time. It didn't matter what job I had because I knew having music in me and these little ideas I was making and the improvements I was making on my guitar made me feel like the richest person in the world. So it didn't matter what job I had because I could just put on my headphones and think about my songs and... And then after about three, four years of that, I enrolled in college again, thinking I will not have to have a day job. I'll live on my loans. I'll live at the dorms. I'll have the food package in college. I'll eat all the cereal I want at the quad or whatever it's called. And I'll learn something. I'll take general studies, and whatever I learn will go into my songwriting. And it was a great plan. I got the loans, got the dorm, I got the food package. I applied for a little extra credit so I wouldn't have to have a job. And so I got this little check of about $2,000 to live on. And that $2,000 would look like a million bucks. And I quit school immediately. <laughs> and I took that two grand and moved to California. And so I left you know, with this new college debt and just bet it all on being in California, seeing what would happen if I take my songs into coffee shops or house parties, backyards, whatever, and try to basically build a team and a community and so try you, this. So you drove from Virginia yeah. to California, mm -hmm. and you've been here ever since. Yeah. It was spring break of that new year of college in 1999, and I had lunch with my mom, and she noticed that my car was packed to the roof. She's like, what are you doing? I was like, I'm just going to go to California for a spring break. She's like, you're going to go all the way to California in a week? I was like, yeah, 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 it's fine. She goes, and you're taking all that stuff? <laughs> I was like, um, yeah. 
I didn't tell my parents, couldn't tell my mom, tell my dad, couldn't tell anybody because I was so scared that I, all it would take was one person to talk me out of it. So I told no one and I just hit the road, scared, got on the freeway like, what am I doing? I'm leaving it all behind. By yourself? By myself. And you end up in San Diego? I ended up in San Francisco because I knew one person in San Francisco who let me crash on a couch. And uh, it was meant to be because my friend was dating a guy who had at one time been managed by Bill Silva. And this guy, Ron, who is a fantastic person, he notices I have talent. And he says, in this about three weeks of being in San, San Francisco, this is very, very lucky. I got very, very lucky, by the way. I hit the lotto. After about three weeks in San Francisco, I'm down now to about a couple hundred dollars because it took a lot of money to move to California. I put $200 in a sock drawer in San Francisco, and I go with Ron to Las Vegas where Bill Silva is having a party because he's promoting concerts there. Bill Silva's a local promoter, and he was also in music management. Bill also promotes all the shows that you'll see at the Hollywood Bowl. That's right. And he and I are still close friends. Love him forever. So Ron introduces me to Bill in Vegas. I'm a stupid kid. I'm 21 years old. I lose all my money in Vegas, practically. But I meet Bill, and I play songs in a hotel room for a bunch of people. And Bill's like, who are you? What are you doing? I said, I don't know. I'm scared. I'm just moved to California. I'm looking for an opportunity to play music. And he's like, if you don't mind, go to San Diego. And I have a friend there. Record a couple of songs. Let's see, let's see what you're made of. So I go to San Diego from Vegas. And I record a few songs with Mike Andrews, who's also a great composer and producer. He records a few songs. And he's like, OK, you're not great, but you're not terrible. You need experience. You need to write a bunch of songs. This is Mike telling you this Mike, or Bill telling you Mike. this? But I think Bill took Mike's lead, too. He's like, you've got something. So immerse yourself in the coffee shop music scene of San Diego if you can somewhere. Just go and play and write a 1,000 songs. Get better and then report back to us in a year, let's say. So Bill gave me kind of this great handshake agreement and guidance to stay in San Diego, work on my craft. And after about three years, I had a lot of songs and I had a nice little audience in a coffee shop. And that's when we started to take our story into the uh, recording arts, into the music business. So in those three years, were you in touch with Bill often or were you just honing your craft? For the first year, not so much because I just was immersed in coffee shops, learning. I mean, I was open mics. I, was, I didn't even have my own time. I had to earn my time. So I was open mics and singer-songwriter nights and just writing and writing and writing and writing, recording songs on a four-track, just trying to make improvements. There was a coffee shop scene back yeah. then in San mm-hmm. Diego. Jewel had started there and come out of that, later mm-hmm. signed to Atlantic. Yep. And there was a coffee shop called Java Joe's mm-hmm. that she came out of and that I think she may have came, come out of, but that was the spot. And you went to Java Joe's, and they're like, you're not ready for us. So you, Absolutely. Went, you went down the street. That's right. And you started building 
up a fan base, yeah. and you would play all the time, the fans would come, and eventually Java Joe would say, please come. Please come to my shop. Right. Yeah, exactly. And then you started making some money, and you were able to play at the coffee shops, hone your craft, write more songs, and ultimately see what songs you were writing reacted the best with the audience. That's right. So you were getting real-time feedback. And you were writing songs like a la what Dave Matthews had done, kind of spinning the classic singer-songwriter genre on its head. Your songwriting was, you know, you mentioned Dave Matthews' band Weird, right? Mm -hmm. Your songwriting was a little weird at yeah. the time. Yeah. But people responded to it because you had this kind of jazz thing that you were working into your singer-songwriting. Yeah. And a lot of artists will capture your attention if they're just going, if their voice cuts through the crowd, and if their stream of consciousness writing just keeps you interested. Like, I feel like that's, that was part of it. My songs were weird, but I also just would passionately play and shout and sing and make noises with my face and show up week after week. So for whatever reason, whether it was the writing or the performance, people kept coming back. And because people kept coming back, I was then inspired to keep writing and adding things to the show so that every week felt a little different. I think one of the reasons they kept coming back was because you made them feel good mm. and there was a celebratory vibe to the music that you were making in the coffee shop environment that was just infectious and they would tell their friends and it would get more crowded mm -hmm. and eventually do you and Bill make the rounds of the record labels because you're selling CDs that you were recording off of the coffee shop scene and people were buying them and you had a business building. That's right. So I started making bootlegs of my coffee shop show so people could buy merch at our shows and those we're really making the rounds and we were, internet was new and we were shipping them out around the country. And so now having this little business of selling recordings, Bill and I put together our conference room tour. We made t-shirts that was like maybe the 2001 coffee shop or conference room tour. And we visited a bunch of major label conference rooms, very similar to this. And I'd play my songs and people would look at me with clipboards and say, this is too weird for me. <laughs> and we would then go on our way. Um, but one of those CDs landed on the desk of Josh Deutsch's assistant at then Electra. And she encouraged Josh and Sylvia to give it a strong listen. And they had us in and of all the companies we met, they just really seemed to get it, and they knew song titles, and they knew moments within songs. So I knew that they were really listening and that they cared enough to help me develop. So you signed to Electra in late 2001, mm -hmm. and you start writing for your first album, which later you title Waiting for My Rocket to Come, comes out in 2002. But at that point, you're used to writing all your own songs. And the label, as a label will, says, Jason, you've always written your own songs. Why don't you co-write with other people? Mm -hmm. And one of the songs that you co-wrote was a song called The Remedy. Mm -hmm. Remember The Remedy, everybody? And I heard a rumor that you did not want to put it on your album. That is correct. And one of the reasons was that it was a co-write, and you didn't feel that it was 100% you. That's right. And Josh fought you on that? Oh, everybody fought me on that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, so I had written this song originally about my friend Charlie. It was a um, true story about his uh, fight against cancer, and he beat it. And his message really became the guts of that song. And I shared that with The Matrix, Lauren Christie, and the writers of The Matrix. And they loved the story, and they heard me say Charlie's message. was, man, I'm not going to worry my life away. I'm going to do what the doctors tell me. And... And so they heard that, and they 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 talk amongst themselves. Okay, blah, blah, blah. what about a chorus that goes, "I won't worry my life away"? And I was like, "Wow, it's just that easy." And I, I was, it was so easy that I was like, "I don't know, I don't know. Can can it just be that easy?" And also, the chorus started before the verse ended. There's an overlap. So I thought, well, physically, it's impossible for me to sing that because the verse isn't finished and the but I went along with it. It wasn't my first co-write, but I went along with it. I laid down a vocal. About a week later, they sent the CD, because you couldn't get the tracks very fast in those days. They got the CD, and it was this massive sounding song, huge. I've never heard a song of mine produced so big. And everyone thought, wow, this, this, you could play this on the radio. This song is a smash. And I thought, not my song. Right. I just had so much resistance because of A, my friend, I didn't really want to like exploit my friend's situation, nor did I want to, I hadn't had the experience yet of letting go of some of my own art to collaborate. So they said, no problem, don't have to use it. Well, I show up to the studio on our last day of tracking the drums and bass, which are like the basic first week of recording, and when I get there, there's a big stretch limousine outside the studio. And we're in the hills of Virginia. I'm like, what is their limo here? <laughs> and I go inside, and Josh Deutsch is in there. And they're playing The Remedy, which I had not shared with the producer or the band yet. And they're all listening to it. And I'm like, where'd you get this? They're like, oh, man, we got to record this. This song's awesome. I was like, yeah, but I'm not a fan. They said, well, you're not a fan of this version. Let's make a new version here today, and you're going to love it. That was with a different producer, with John Alasia. With John Alasia and Agents of Good Roots. Right. Agents of Good Roots being the band on the Waiting for My Rocket to Come. That's right. And so I cried in the vocal booth during the takes of it because I didn't want to be doing it. And I felt like a sellout. I thought, I am doing exactly the opposite of what I thought I would do. And this sound is going to take me in a completely different direction than sort of the jazzy, punk, weird thing that I was doing. And Bill Silva was there, and he, he's such a guru. He's such a wise, kind person. And he said, listen to your own words. Like, don't worry about it. This music is beautiful. It's powerful. It's medicine. Let, let the lyrics help you. And they did. Great advice. And we got through it, and I grew to love it, and it eventually became the first single, and it really started to connect with people, especially those who were fighting cancer, and I really saw the power in Charlie's story, and I really saw the power of positive thinking and how positive articulation in songwriting can have such a huge effect on a listener, but also me as a singer or anyone who chooses to cover the song starts to sing these positive affirmations, I won't worry my life away. It really shifted a lot for me personally and especially career-wise. I, 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 
that became a hallmark of your writing and your recorded That's output right. ever since, mm -hmm. because when we listen to your music, it makes us feel good, mm -hmm. you know? And it's this brand of positivity that just keeps paying it forward, and we could all use positivity in our lives. That's right. So what did your friend Charlie think when he heard the final recorded version of the song? Oh, he was, he was moved. And then when it came out and he was done, I was on the road for a good two years from first album and second album. He ended up moving in, out to L.A. and living in my apartment, uh, rent-free, of course. Nice. And got to spend many years in L.A. himself working in the industry for a while. And we're still super tight. He was just acknowledged last night on Dancing with the Stars awesome. as well. Like we're, He's coming out in a couple of weeks to see the show. That's so great. the song continues to touch his life and mine as well. Love that. Yeah. I mean, that's the reason that we all do what we do for the music that we get to work on or work with to affect people's lives. Mm -hmm. So Waiting for My Rocket to Come eventually goes platinum. It's not only The Remedy, but it's you and I both, and it's curbside profit. And then you go out on the road, and you start opening some big tours. You open for Jewel, like we talked about. You open for Tracy Chapman. What was that like, getting your first kind of real road-dogging it, where you were now promoting your major label debut album, and you're on the road performing these songs in really big venues? It was great. You know, so I spent years in coffee shops working on my show, and it was so great to finally take that show on the road. And as an opener, you're doing a condensed version, so an hour of power or 45 minutes or something. And so I loved that that challenge of converting an audience of strangers, you know, people I don't know, to that by the end of that 45 minutes, we're all laughing, we're all singing together. Meet me in the lobby, I'll sign your CD, um, join I mean, our email list. Community building. Community building. And Jules' audience was perfect for it. She gave me a West Coast and an East Coast tour. We were driving in a van, chasing her private jet around <laughs> to make all these shows. We didn't have a sound person. We played without monitors. Three of us downstage listening to the PA as our monitoring. And to this day, I don't like to use monitors because I started my career listening to the PA in the house. Tracy Chapman's audience was amazing. Alanis Morissette gave me a summer tour. She was amazing. She'd come and check on me. How you feeling? Is everything okay? Are you eating well? I got to open for Dave Matthews many times, which was like full circle for me. And the, the group that really changed my life was I did five dates opening for the Rolling Stones. And I say they changed my life because up to this point, I was still junk food, drinking beer, smoking a cigarette, right before I walk on stage. And when I did shows with the Rolling Stones, it's organic food, Mick Jagger's working out, everyone's taking care of themselves. And I say, wait a second, this is not what I thought. And if I want to be a performer at their age, I need to not be smoking, drinking, and eating this junk food. So I credit the Rolling Stones for my healthy lifestyle. <laughs> it's true. The songwriting process, while you're on the road, there's the old saying that you have your entire life to write your first album, 
and then six weeks to write your second album. But you used to write a lot of songs. Still do. And you were quoted, I read, that there is no such thing as a wasted effort or a wasted song when you write. And one thing that I heard based on you saying that, I have never heard before, but it it plays into your role as a farmer and a family farmer and, you know, the um, Mraz family farms, which we'll talk about later, is that writing a shitty song is compost for a better idea to come. That's right. What a great concept. Yeah. So what was the process like of going from the Waiting for My Rocket to Come cycle to writing Mr. A to Z? It wasn't easy. Writing Mr. A to Z was hard. The second album was hard. because second was always hard. Always hard because you spent, you know, if that first album, good or bad, you're on the road promoting it. So you're living in hotels, sleeping in a van or whatever you're doing to, to make it. And then you also have this kind of like pressure to like, well, are you writing? Are you getting your ideas together for your next record? And like, so... The themes were like airports, hotels, um, misconnections, like longing, um, or or like daydreaming about the moon, and and very sometimes abstract ideas. And so it was fun. I would have to block out little like writing retreats for myself to go and just focus and try to create things. I didn't have yet a a regular practice or routine because I. My whole life had been turned upside down by living on the road. So making the second album was a little tough. Yeah, it was a little tough. Second album, you worked with our former podcast guest, Steve Lillywhite, yeah. to produce it. What was it like going from John Alasia in Virginia to go work with Steve Lillywhite on Mr. A through Z? It was a wonderful experience. John Alasia was very much like recorded drums at a friend's house, recorded the rest of the album in his parents' living room. The singles that came off of that album, Wordplay, Geek in the Pink, are still fan favorites to this day. Right. I don't play either of those songs anymore either. (laughs) But a lot of the songs on that record I still play. I play Song for a Friend. I play Bella Luna. I play Mr. Curiosity. There are songs that did somehow survive. Geek in the Pink and Wordplay were like the result of me trying to write singles, which is the hardest thing to do in the whole wide world. And so Wordplay is about writing a single. And I thought, nobody can relate to that. That's very meta. Yeah. Um, so it was fun. Geek in the Pink was fun. And that, was, that did come out of me being in Scott Storch's studio in Miami feeling like I'm trying to fit in. I was had this little pink button-up shirt on, and it was filled with models and wrappers and a ton of weed and, and a lot of bling, and I just felt really out of place. And so then when it was my turn, I was like, well, let the geek in the pink take a stab at it. If you like the way I'm thinking, baby, wink at it. I could be the one to take you home. Baby, we could rock the night alone. If we never get 
down, it wouldn't be a letdown. But sugar, don't forget what you already know. That I could be the one to turn you out. We could be the talk across the town. Don't judge it by the color, confuse it for another. You might regret what you let slip away like the geek in the pink. Okay, this is my song. This is my song. And Wait, what were you doing at Scott Storch's house? I don't know. <laughs> I was going on co-writes. That's what they do. They send you out. I, I Go had visit a, somebody. I had an experience <laughs> with Scott Storch that is so unique. In 30 plus years of doing A&R, I have never had this experience before. I traveled down to Miami with an artist that I was working with at the time. We get there. We're ready for him to work with this artist. And he's like, sorry, I'm going on a date. I had the same exact experience. <laughs> I don't even think we talked to each other. He definitely got there late in a very fancy car. Very fancy And you ever heard of like, those high profile people who have someone next to him that just rolls weed? <laughs> he had one of those guys. And they rolled fat ones. And I like weed, so I was participating. <laughs> But he came in, he sat down. I, don't, I honestly don't think we spoke to each other. He played some chords, looped it, and was like, all right, cool, I'm going on a date. And he left with a supermodel. Yep. And I sat there with his engineer, and there was a couple of people that kept coming in and out of the room, making noise and, and rapping as well. And that's why I thought, well, I'm here to rap. Um, <laughs> let the geek in the pink take a stab at it. And go. then I left with my little loop of chords and my song idea. Well, even if it's a song that you don't perform anymore, what a great story. And you know, it's like every song has to come from somewhere. That's right, yeah. But working on the album with Steve Lillier, it was great. He was amazing, he, it was VIP, booked us a studio out in Woodstock, New York, Allaire. It's a gorgeous, old, steel, barren mansion that's turned into a studio. And my touring band and I got to camp out there for a month and make this record. So one of my favorite summers, I got to make the record with some of my best friends. We worked really hard. We recorded it live to tape. It's a, it's a weird little artsy record, but we love it. In fact, the re-release we put out a few years ago, we included some instrumentals, because I really do think that the musical production, without my voice, is a great record. Awesome. Yeah. And that can be uh, found at uh, your streaming platform of choice? Yeah, streaming, and we put it out on vinyl maybe a year or two ago, yeah. There you go, mm -hmm. so we can look for that. Yeah. And that all leads to the third album and why we're here today, which is We Sing, We Dance, We Steal Things, 2008. And there's so many interesting things about this record. And we were talking backstage that you released this record in 2008 which was the same year that I got to Atlantic, a few months after you guys released the record. And so when I got there, everyone was all about this record. Mm -hmm. And what was interesting to me about how this record was marketed, it was originally released with three EPs. We Sing, We Dance, and we steal things. Mm -hmm. And each of the EPs were a few songs, kind of a taste of things to come from the full album. Mm -hmm. Was that your idea? Was that someone at the label's idea? How did you guys come up with that strategy? I don't know whose idea that was, but I liked it. And I don't remember if that was digital. I know we had physical copies that went out. Because my success, too, had always come from being 
live and letting bootlegs exist or letting the audience have it early. And so that was the idea with the three EPs. Let's make some acoustic versions. Let's put some demos out and just get them out early to our fans. And this, so this was the early days of digital music being you know, legally downloaded. iTunes was new. Mm -hmm. You sold it on jasonmoraz.com, which was a new concept, and atlanticrecords.com, which was new back then. But it all led up to the release of the album in May, and the album, based on how it was preceded by these three EPs, came out strong mm -hmm. and debuted really high on the chart and was ultimately led by now this classic, timeless song, I'm Yours. So mm. why don't you talk a little bit about how you wrote I'm Yours and the creation of that? So I wrote I'm Yours pretty quickly on like a summer day in 2004. I was working on Mr. A to Z at the time. We were doing some overdubs. Actually, we were getting ready to track Mr. A to Z out in, out in Woodstock, and I was putting some ideas and demos together. And one afternoon, just strumming on my guitar, I'm asking Source, the great unknown, God, love, the universe, whatever it is, I'm saying, all right, I'm here. I want to create. Maybe it's been a minute since I've written a great song. I want to be available. Make me an instrument. I'm yours. And I start just singing. And, and most of the way I write is freestyle. I, I like to just close my eyes, start making noise, sing, say, speak some truth, whatever. And then, if, if possible, record it while doing it or write it down as fast as I can, whatever I say. It came out very quickly, and I'm, luckily I was in the mood to write things down and, and get it done. And I thought, this is cute, sounds like a kid's song, let me put it aside. I did play it for Steve, we, we goofed around with it during Mr. A to Z, but it just it wasn't ready, it wasn't realized. It, 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 it needed some time to grow and marinate. So it didn't make it onto Mr. A to Z. But I started playing it live in 2005. I, start, I put it on my MySpace page in 2005, my own little home bedroom recording. And as I'm touring around Mr. A to Z years, I'm Yours becomes a, a very most, like the most requested song of our tour. Fan favorite. A fan favorite. So I'm now having to finish my shows with I'm Yours. And so we knew going into We Sing, We Dance, We Steal Things that I'm Yours was going to get a birthday. You know, we're going to, it's finally going to live on a record. And we thought, Let's not change the MySpace version at all. Let's just put drums on it, right? So we basically tried to recreate my bedroom version to the best of my ability and then just put drums and bass on it. So what I want is your day. I guess that's the story. It was written pretty quickly. I thought it was a kid's tune, and to my surprise, the audience, the inner ch children of all of us heard that song and felt there's something very familiar there. For some reason, it just connected. Well, there's a parallel to how music is released now, where an artist can put an idea up. They don't have to tour it. 
they can just put it up. And if the audience responds to it, then the artist can say, oh, I should actually make a full version of this and, and release it. When you went in to record the fully produced version of I'm Yours for We Sing, We Dance, We Steal Things, you were working with a new producer. Steve Lillywhite had done the last album, and now you're working with Martin Terefe. That's right. And so what was that? Why did you change producers from album one to album two to album three? Um, I've always enjoyed going with a different producer for every record because the same reason I'm on a dancing show right now, I love new experiences. And I feel like every time I have a new co-write or a new producer, I'm just getting more tools, more knowledge, more advice, somebody else to, to surprise me and inspire me to do something or, th or, or act or think differently. And so I'm, I look at that as just like an education. I had met Martin Terefe in 2001. We did some co-writes together in my early Electra album one cycle. And we became friends and we loved making music together. And so on album three, he was available. I went to London to create and play songs and I had a bunch of ideas for We Sing and he and his session band just got it and brought these songs to life so quickly that I decided to stay in London and just keep creating and the, the whole album came together pretty quickly because of I'm Yours, Butterfly, Make It Mine, Beautiful Mess, Lucky, a bunch of songs that I already had. Martin was like, what else do you have? I played him Details and Coyotes, The Dynamo Volition, and the songs just kept growing, and the album was delightfully weird, and then also familiar and, and charming, like Lucky and, and I'm Yours, you know? So Martin is a wonderful producer because he gets what you need, right? as an A&R person, but then he also gets what the artist needs, which is to try to make something you've never made before or, or try to deliver something that's so uniquely and joyfully you that the audience is getting something very special. Well, he was able to capture the charm of those songs right. and of your personality. When you look at a platform like Spotify, I'm Yours right now has streamed 1.7 billion times. That's um, crazy. I'd like to add to that Pandora... They told me they got to a billion way before Spotify did. There you go. So take okay. that, Spotify. So just shout out to Pandora. Thanks. And as you mentioned before, 76 weeks on the Hot 100. I'm Yours made it all the way to number six on the Hot 100 and 13 times platinum like we talked about. And I remember being in marketing meetings when I was a new A&R at Atlantic. And it was like, okay, we're another week at radio. And it took a year for this song to really scale the heights and become, you know, one of the most played songs at radio that year, which is a testament to just more and more and more people hearing it and telling their friends and really making it this all-time classic that it's become. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. Which, which is crazy. Talk about this distinctive artwork. You know, it's so singularly you. you know, Thanks. What was, what was the, the genesis behind the art? I know that there's an artist named David Shrigley yep. who was an inspiration. Talk, yeah. talk about the art. So David Shrigley is a fantastic artist from Scotland. I highly recommend looking him up, follow him, check out some of his art, his books, exhibits, whatever. He's, he's like a doodle artist. Very um, 
almost sarcastic, um, self-deprecating, the kind of artist where it looks like he's on the phone while doodling on the side, and then the doodle becomes the artwork, you know? Or they look like just little visual journal entries of humor or sadness. I fell in love with him the minute I saw him. It just feels like what I would doodle in my books. And I was in a museum the first time I, I discovered his work, and I came across a Venn diagram that he had done with you know three big circles, and inside of each circle it said, we sing, we dance, we steal things. And right in the middle, of course, was we sing and dance and steal things. And I thought, that's a, such a cool album title. And I went into the studio before I even got to Martin's in London with that title in mind, and I tried to write songs with those words in it, and it just it wasn't clicking. But I reached out to David Shrigley and asked if I could use those words as a title, and he said, yes. So I thought, yes, that is so cool. And then when we were getting ready to put the art together, Sam Reback, who was A&R the record, he was aware of Shrigley and thought, hey, you should have David Shrigley do your portrait. And so again, I reached out to David for permission, and David said, you know it's not going to be very good. I said, exactly. And within five minutes, he sent back seven portraits. I honestly, within five minutes, so fast, he just emailed me these silly portraits. Jason Mraz, fond of hats. Jason Mraz, American musician, occasionally bearded. They had these <laughs> weird titles underneath of them. And it had, of course, the one with the dazed and lost eyes. And we all took one look at it and thought, that is such an album cover. Let's go for it. And uh, thank you, David Shrigley. We paid him in 2008 for the portraits and the title. And, and it's the gift and that keeps giving. And then the Atlantic Art later. Department did all the rest. That was our friend Greg Burke, Greg right? Burke. In yeah. fact, this kind of looks like Greg Burke up there, right? A little bit of a tribute to <laughs> it, it Greg. It absolutely is Greg Burke. Yeah. If, if, for those of you who know the great Atlantic art director Greg Burke, yeah. that's him with, with the cap and the dreadlocks over yeah. there. Wow, I never noticed that until yeah. just now. So Atlantic filled in all the rest. David did the portraits and the font that inspired everything else. Amazing. Yeah. So the, the version of the 15th anniversary version contains 14 new to vinyl songs, including demos, including a previously unreleased song. Anything else you want to tell us about this 15th anniversary edition? Well, I tried to find songs that were recorded during the recording sessions or, and or were recorded during, say, the demo sessions. And so I found the original Coyotes from my garage band I found the original details in the fabric, uh, which features real authentic uh, voicemail from my friend Billy Galewood, who's here tonight, who is famous for uh, you're an island of reality in an ocean of diarrhea, <laughs> um, which is on this record at the end of details. Thank you, Billy, for that. He probably should have gotten co-write for that. <laughs> I used his voicemail in, on the master recording. Everything. Everything will always be funky. I can't stop being funky, but it's, uh, 
sickness. Um, you just deal with it how it comes, you deal with the humps, you take the jumps. I feel like you're an island of reality and an ocean of diarrhea. I did find on an old computer my very first draft of Lucky, which is featured on side D, which is the version I wrote before that I sent to Colby Calais as an idea of a possible duet. And I honestly didn't know that I had that. So digging to put this record collection together, finding my first draft of Lucky was just amazing. I'm lucky I'm in love with my best friend. Lucky to have been where I have been. Lucky to be coming back again. I'm lucky I'm in love with my best mate. Lucky to have stayed where I have stayed. Lucky that I'm coming back someday. And so that's included here too. Happy Endings is a song that was the last thing I recorded in London before we basically turned the lights out and said goodnight to all the, all the sessions. It was a little slow in singer-songwriter to fit that, the album, but I, in my head I always thought it would have been on the record. So now, 15 years later, it is on the record. I'm in my dreams, you are queen of the ball. Though sometimes you off my head. But to me, that's a happy ending. For you, I'd fall. Yeah, that wouldn't hurt at all. Not at all. Three EPs. The three EPs are included. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot. A yeah. bang for your buck there. Yeah. Um, when you look back <laughs> on 15 years of We Sing, We Dance, We Steal Things, how do you feel? Honestly, it feels like 30 years ago. So 15 years is not that long. <laughs> it's not, which is great. Because I still feel like the same kid, even though a lot has happened since then. And you still look the same. I still look the same, yeah. There you go. Yeah. So after that album, you continued on. You made some incredible albums, not only for Electra, but also for Atlantic. Uh, we Sing, We Dance was the first one on Atlantic, right? Mm -hmm. Love is a four-letter word, which had uh, the massive I Won't Give Up and also the fan favorite 93 Million Miles. The album Yes in 2014, and then the album No in 2018 that we worked on together mm -hmm. with Have It All, which was also you know, a record... A song that you had written bef like a few years before you recorded it. You want to talk about that a little bit? Um, how you recorded that song? How you wrote that song? Yeah, I think Have It All was born either in uh, I think around 2013 or 14. I had visited Myanmar in 2012 and while in Myanmar the common greeting was Tashi Dalek, Tashi Dalek which I believe amongst Buddhists is translated to say May you have auspiciousness and causes of success. And I thought, wow, what a beautiful thing to say to a total stranger. Like, that is the greeting. May you have auspiciousness and causes of success. So on the plane ride home, that was my starting point. May you have auspiciousness, causes of success. May you have the confidence to always do your best. May it take no effort in being generous. 
sharing what you can, nothing more, nothing less, and just playing the word game, the puzzle of songwriting on the flight home. And a few months later, I was in a session with uh, David Hodges, and we were creating music, and I came upon those verses, and we started writing Have It All. So we got those verses and came up with the chorus, um, and then I shared the idea with Raining Jane, because we were working on the Yes record in 2014, and we came up with the bridge. But again, Have It All just wasn't ready. It wasn't fully realized. It didn't match the sound of Yes, so I, I shelved it. And then I kind of forgot about it. Then it just kind of got lost in a pile of songs. And luckily, one of the other co-writers who does not remember writing it, by the way, uh, because I don't even remember him being there, Jay Cash, who probably went outside to smoke a doobie or something. <laughs> I don't know. He was a part of the session, but he's doing something else. Hodges and I make this little demo. Well, Jay Cash's wife finds the song. I don't know how, maybe on a CD. She finds it in 2017 or 18, like years and years later. And she reaches out to probably you and David Silberstein Correct. and says, why isn't this song released? Why isn't this a Jason Mraz song? Well, here's to the hearts that you're gonna break Here's to the lives that you're gonna change Here's to the infinite possible ways to love you I want you to have it Here's to the good times we're gonna have You don't need money, got a free pass Here's to the fact that I'll be sad without you I want you to have it all Let's shout out to Jay Cash's wife. Jay Cash's wife. Jamie, Jamie Zellick, who is an amazing publisher yes. and a good friend. Yeah. And, good um, find. Yeah, no, really good find. I love the fact that every year around graduation, mm -hmm. that song spikes in consumption mm. because what a great message yeah. to give to someone graduating and moving on yeah. you know, through the world. Yeah, and that's really what it felt like. And I had also been starting to work more every year uh, at the school level with young people in arts education. And so I wanted to give them a song that had that feeling. And so I was thinking about those graduation moments and it's so cool to see it actually come to fruition. Well, the fact that you bring that up, you've always talked about the importance of music and arts curriculum in public schools. You have the Jason Mraz Foundation. You want to talk a little bit about the goals and the mission statement of the foundation? Sure. We shine for inclusive arts education and the advancement of equality and food security. Because a lot of the kids that go to these arts programs also rely on the snacks and the hot meals that they might get while also receiving an arts education. We give them basically grants, scholarships, and opportunities for big productions and performance so they can really shine on a big stage and that has a full professional feel. Um, during COVID, that really, it limited our ability to get into classrooms, but it expanded our reach through the virtual world and it allowed us to start really connecting nationally. Whereas prior to that, we were working in my two hometowns of Richmond, Virginia and San Diego. And I chose this lane because that's where I came up. I came up taking community theater opportunities and after school programs, any chance I could get on stage. So I know as a young person that has an interest in the arts, 
they're always looking for a stage. They're always looking for an opportunity to shine and get more experience. So that's what we do. We give them opportunities. That's incredible. Talk about the uh, Moraz family farms as well. So the farms is probably my biggest failure, but I love it so much. I call it the biggest failure because it's, it's just my backyard fruit trees. But water, the price of water is outrageous. We're organic certified, the price of certification and the labor. And we, because we're organic, we basically grow grasses and weeds, which require a lot of maintenance and pest control organically. So all of that just became this like surmounting cost. And I thought, well, how do farmers do it? And I participated in Farm Aid many years with Willie Nelson and Dave Matthews and learned about the struggles of the family farm. And I should have learned not to start a family farm. <laughs> because for the past 100, 200 years, family farms are getting edged out by large corporate farms. Um, they're just not surviving. And so I started one of my own. And it sucks. Uh, <laughs> but it's a great quality of life. It's a healthy environment. I live in a botanical garden. We produce avocados, passion fruits, bananas. I, when I bought my house in San Diego, it came with avocado trees. And as I converted them to organic and started to take on the costs, my idea was, oh, let me just sell these and start a farm business, and I'll plant more trees to offset the costs. No, all I've done was plant more trees, which cost more to produce. So now I'm deep, deep in farm <laughs> debt, but I've learned a lot, still growing. I'm, I bought the farm, uh, <laughs> can never sell. Uh, <laughs> But I, I love it. I love, and I'm hopefully, I get to, I employ people. We protect and conserve wildlife in the area. I feel like we've inspired our neighbors to also grow organically, saving bees and producing a, an abundant variety of trees. In some places, we are the only place that grows certain plant materials. That's like a fire safety for other farms should they ever lose their materials. So it is fun, but if I'd have known what really goes into it, I probably wouldn't have done it, you know? Because why? it's my home. <laughs> I regret turning my backyard into a business. <laughs> There's always people out there. There's farm equipment driving by everywhere. Last weekend I went home for a night, it smelled like shit because that's what's everywhere. Sometimes you bring in the shit and it brings in a million flies and then your house fills up with flies. How do you get rid of the flies? You bring in a million wasps so the wasp can eat the fly larva. How do you get rid of the wasp? Hope the birds eat them. <laughs> like, it's just constant mayhem. The life of a family farmer. Yeah. But the avocados are delicious. Absolutely. Thanks. What, one other thing that I wanted to touch on is the, the concept of theater has come up a lot here. Theater. Theater. The theater. I love the theater. Where you t took this long circuitous journey from community theater back in Virginia and doing some high school theater to actually making your Broadway debut in 2017 in Waitress. That's right. How was that? A gynecologist. <laughs> Live on stage. 
That was a wonderful experience. I was, the character I was playing was basically an adult behaving badly. The, the entire Waitress show was a wonderful experience, incredible music, great story. It was like a sitcom. There was always laughter and it hit you emotionally. I didn't know that I would enjoy something doing it eight times a week. I thought it would be very repetitive, but it was not. I was so surprised. It felt different every time we did it. And it also felt like doing Saturday Night Live eight times a week because the show was that good and hearing the audience laugh so much and deliver these jokes and beats and these songs, it was so rewarding. It was three weeks of rehearsal, and then basically no more rehearsal, just show, 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 well, show. Well, it's eight shows a week. Eight shows a week. And you did it for three, over three months. Yeah, I did almost four months. I did 111 shows, which isn't that long for people who do Broadway. But, but for someone doing it for the first time. Yeah, and at the same time was working on the No album right. and was excited to hit the road so I didn't continue my run in Waitress because I really wanted to get back to being on the road and singing songs. Would you go back to Broadway? If you had I the would go back to Broadway were it the right show and the right character. And in this case, it was the right show, right character. Yeah. And it was your friend Sarah who and had And Sarah Bareilles wrote the music. I had recorded the songs on her album maybe a year or two prior and so getting the phone call then later to see if I'd want to then sing those songs in the show was just, was just another level. And I was so scared, but again, it was a new experience, and I love new experiences. And you're still making music. Your latest album, Mystical, Magical, Rhythmical, Radical Ride, say that 10 times fast, was released earlier this year, like we said, on your birthday. You went back to our friend Martin Tarefe to produce. Mm -hmm. And it's a really, really fun record. Thank you. Know, you. The first single, I Feel Like Dancing, makes you want to dance. And what a harbinger to what you're doing every Tuesday night now. Incredible. Tell, careful what you tell the universe. <laughs> <laughs> well, happy 15th birthday to We Sing, We Dance, Yay. We Steal Things. And welcome back to Atlantic. Thank you so Jason much. Jason Mraz. Thanks, everyone. You made me feel so special. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for your hard work in helping artists' music be heard and collected and purchased and streamed and tattooed on their bodies and fans for life and all the things you do to help connect artists to their fans and to their listeners, whether it happens this weekend or they thumb through a vinyl collection 50 years from now and go, what is this? And they put it on and like, wow, this is crazy. And then they sample it and it becomes something else. Like, I just love the possibilities of recorded music. So thank you all for the time and energy you put into getting music out there to the world. I really appreciate awesome. it. Thank you, Jason Moran. Yay. I won't give up all us Even if the skies get rough I'm giving you all my love I'm still looking up I'm still looking up When I won't Thanks a lot to Jason Mraz for joining us this week. You can keep up with everything Jason's got going on at his website, jasonmraz.com. 
And you can keep up with us at our website, rockschoolpodcast.com, or drop us a line at rockschoolpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Additional thanks this week to the staff of Rhino Records for assisting with this interview. Kevin Gore, Joseph Cacciola, Mark Pincus, Karen Schoenrock, Greg Brunswick, Andre Torres, and Skylar Morgan. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time for another episode of Rock and Roll High School. Rock and Roll High School is a presentation of Pure Tone Music in association with Warner Music. Produced by Pete Ganbarg, with assistance from Craig Rosen, Ron Robinson, Joe Pomerico, Kelly Sayer, Chris Costello, Willie Fastenau, Catherine Hoppy, Kayla Flores, Zach Kornhauser, and Rich Mahan. Please visit our website at rockschoolpodcast.com for more info on past and future shows. All rights reserved. Rock, 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 rock on high school.